We understand that we've got to address the entire person, and that includes the behavioral health aspect that is so important. What we're seeing healthcare organizations do is move to more of a patient-centric model of care, and there's a number of factors that play into that. One of that, one of them is focusing on the patient and not the disease. I see some dark clouds on the horizon that threaten, threaten the stability of the system. Welcome, everybody, and good morning. This is the Sacramento Business Journal's Trends and Innovations in Health and Benefits Care Program. My name is David Lickman. I'm the publisher and market president of the Sacramento Business Journal. We're pleased to have you here this morning to hear from our panel of experts about the many changes taking place in the healthcare arena. There is significant activity happening in many areas that touch healthcare, and we'll explore some of them today. Healthcare and health benefits are a top concern of people in America today and is a top concern for employers as well as we seek to provide the best possible work environments for those we employ and those we hope to employ in the future. Our team has put together an outstanding panel of industry experts that will examine the evolving health care scene and broader changes in benefits and employment policies. Increasingly, health care and employee benefits are tightly linked to employee engagement and employee satisfaction. These panelists will help you understand what trends they're seeing. At this point, I'd like to thank our sponsors who make this morning possible. First is a multi-year partner sponsor, UC Davis Health. At UC Davis Health, life-changing research happens as close to home as routine checkups, and they're honored to offer the innovation of their nationally recognized academic health system right here in Sacramento. I'd also like to thank supporting sponsor Sutter Health Aetna. Sutter Health Aetna is a joint venture that brings together Sutter's clinical excellence with Aetna's leading health plan expertise, providing a uniquely connected network of nationally recognized health systems. So I also want to thank our exhibitors, Sutter Health Aetna, Select Business Development Group, University of Phoenix, who are here today. We want to thank our long-term and strong audiovisual partner, ANG, Audiovisual Services, for their help. Thank you very much to our sponsor. So leading the discussion today is our editor-in-chief, Adam Steinauer. Adam's been our editor for over three years. He's got a background in journalism with Bloomberg News and the Las Vegas Business Journal at one time, I believe, and Las Vegas Review. Review. Adam has been moderating this panel uh, since he's been back. He has a wealth of knowledge in the medical industry and will be uh, taking us through our journey today. So, Adam, if you'll introduce the panel, we'll get going. Thank you, David. Introducing our panel, to my right is Dr. Dan Field, uh, Chief Medical Officer of MD Staffers, uh, provider of uh, recruiting and management services to the medical community and one of the fastest-growing companies in the U.S., recently named by Phoenix Magazine. Uh, to his right is William Huff, uh, Head of Market Development at Sutter Health Aetna, the two-year-old uh, managed care joint venture between Sacramento-based Sutter Health and uh, Insurance. And uh, down at the end is Renee Bosley, Senior Vice President of Epic Insurance Brokers and Consultants. Uh, thank you all for being with us. To start out, let's talk about trends in the cost of care. Covered California in the individual market recently uh, said they expect rising insurance rates of less than 1% going into the next year. I haven't, myself at least, haven't seen data recently as to what the trends are in the uh, employer-sponsored healthcare market. I guess, uh, Renee, maybe you can start us with this. What are you seeing with your clients in terms of uh, the trend in inflation and cost of uh, insurance rates? Well, there's, there's two things to consider. One is the cost of the insurance to cover the care, and the second is the cost of the care itself. So... Uh, medical inflation in July was 2.9% down from a long-term uh, trend of 5.8%. Uh, 
So one of the things that's driving costs down is the actual better organization around care, which we can talk more about, the dignity model, um, organizing around care and creating more efficiencies. But the other factor really is the, the pool, the block of business. So if you think about the individual market, when we first set up the exchanges, underwriters who had to predict the cost needed to make sure that there was enough premium to offset claims, right? And so we didn't know how many people will enroll. As regulations were changing and plans had to change, underwriters weren't sure. There was a lot of uncertainty. So in my opinion, the individual market now is stabilizing. That's a block, if you will, that we can count on. It's become more credible and predictable. It's fairly stable. And I don't see a major change there unless there were some huge regulatory upset. I think that's fairly stable. And I think with the more efficient approach to care, like the Dignity Model um, and some others out there, I think that we're, we're able to drive the cost of the care itself down. On the group side, on the medical, uh, I'm sorry, the employer side, it's really different. It depends on the size of the group. It depends on whether they're in a pool or are they rated on their own and how they're performing. And this can cause a lot of confusion because I'll have a group with Blue Shield get a 12.9% increase. That's their trend for Q1. And they'll say, well, how come... Yuba City got a decrease with Blue Shield. Well, larger employer, different population, they're not in that pool. So what in the, in the group space, the carrier will look at their block of business in that pool, see how it's performing. And just like in the uh, individual market space, they'll try to predict where they think they need those increases to go. So they'll start with medical inflation, they'll start with other risk factors, and they'll have to project forward. So it's interesting to me that the individual market has become more stable at this point and is trending better than the group market, in my opinion, in that pooled space. Individually, it's going to depend for larger employers. It really depends on how their claims are um, being managed and what claims experience they have. So it, it's hard to lump it all into one answer in terms of how the group market is performing. Just a quick follow-up. Um, when you refer to the dignity model, could you describe basically what is yeah, I'm really excited about it. So um, what we're seeing healthcare organizations do is move to more of a patient-centric model of care. And there's a number of factors that play into that. One of that, one of them is focusing on the patient and not the disease. So you could have diabetes, lower back pain, depression, and instead of treat each disease individually, we need to treat the patient as a whole. And so one way that, that Dignity is organizing around that as they're taking a group of physicians and facilities, and they're all agreeing that they're going to work collaboratively on this patient-centric care model. And one of the reasons that healthcare organizations are able to do this, they're calling them accountable care organizations, one of the reasons they're able to do this is we have better technology today, and we have incredible data. So our data is largely driven by artificial intelligence that keeps learning, keeps recognizing behavior patterns and creating more data points. So they can now create a health risk score Per member, it would blow your mind. The other day I was looking at medical inflation and I got an ad for pointy toe flat shoes because I love pointy toe flat shoes and the, the world knows that about me. Well, your digital footprint, it's not unlike your health footprint. So when a physician can look at that data and create a care plan around that member and then you take that primary care physician who's the hub, who's coordinating care between the patient and specialists it's driving down cost. In fact, let me say real quick, and then I'll, 
I'll, move, I'll let you move on. Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City, they have reduced Medicare admissions by 60%. They've reduced private insurance admissions to hospitals by 25%, and they're reducing member cost by 20%. So through this efficient model, it is working. And those are some of the things that are suppressing uh, the increases on the cost of care itself. Moving on, uh, William, what are you seeing in terms of the trend in the cost of, uh, of, of health insurance for both Generetna's clients and some of your competitors? Yeah, sure. Similar to what Renee said, I mean, we are certainly seeing uh, the similar moderation in costs. If you look at what the National Business Group on Health recently said in their 2019 survey, that those employers are seeing about a 6% uh, cost trend. And so we're certainly seeing similar single-digit cost trends. The way that those are being impacted uh, is because, really, employers now understand the importance of being able to attract and retain employees in this very low employment market. And they also understand the importance of if they've got the right benefit package, that also means that they've got to keep that benefit package uh, structured in a way to moderate those costs over time. And so what that has meant is that they're looking for opportunities to understand where they can partner with health systems like Sutter Health, you know, Aetna, that provides them a performance network that will help partner with them through many of the techniques that Renee mentioned uh, to give them transparency into their care as well as then engage their employees. And one of the particular things that we're doing is making sure that those employees can engage early on into the health system through means that are at their disposal, right? So much like the banking industry now wants to push out technology to all of our uh, pocket computers, right, our uh, iPhones and other, you know, devices. That's what we're seeing as the one of the main techniques to help moderate costs is to get those employees anytime, anywhere access to their uh, healthcare systems. That's convenient, right? I mean, we're all now in a world of time shifting, right? We're DVRing shows, watching them when we want to watch the shows, right? And healthcare is really developing that way, you know, as well, where with our own mobile devices, when we have a situation when there's a health need, we've got telemedicine capabilities that are able to meet the need most oftentimes, particularly if it's a dermatological, you know, issue. And that then keeps uh, both facility costs and cost of care, you know, down. So through interaction with our employers, um, and driving into performance networks, as well as making the system itself accessible, we see those as moderating factors on healthcare as well. With that, I mean, 6% is obviously better than what the trend has been in the recent past. In the foreseeable future, do you foresee the, insure, the inflation rate for healthcare getting down closer to the inflation rate for the regular economy? <laughs> well, if I actually knew that, I could probably make a lot of money. I mean, the uh, I think what we though see are the, the the trends that I spoke of right are um, going to help moderate and and the other big trend right is that uh, those of us in healthcare know that it is really 20 percent of the population that's really driving 80 percent 
you know, of the cost. And so we all understand that we've got to get the congestive heart failures, the diabetes, hypertension, we've got to get those things under control. And the good news is on both sides is that, uh, again, as Renee alluded to, with the patient side and patient-centered care, no longer are those systems seen as separate systems. We understand that we've got to address the entire person, and that includes the behavioral health aspect that is so important, right? I mean, we can't get a, a diabetic to test his or her own blood sugar if they're in a mentally unstable state, whatever that might be, stresses at home. And so being able to see the patient holistically, or those are the kinds of trends, and then addressing the big money trends, those are the kinds of things that are going to keep things moderated. Dr. Field, what are your observations about uh, the inflation and the cost of corporate sponsorship? Globally, the numbers that, uh, that I've seen agree with what we've been discussing, that we're in a lull in that hyperinflation that we were experiencing uh, three or four years ago, and we, we see that the uh, cost of insurance benefits rising two times faster than inflation and three, two times faster than wages and three times faster than inflation. But Will was uh, focusing on an area that I think will really benefit uh, the cost curve for some. I just read the story of uh, a woman who came to the emergency department frequently for her asthma attacks, and it might be every week. And uh, it was costing the insurance company a, a lot of money. Uh, but through this holistic approach where they focused on the patient, instead of just saying, well, that's their problem, the doctor authorized a cleaning crew to go to the patient's house, clean the house, get all the dust up, and put the house in, in a better shape. And that actually reduced the frequency of emergency visits to once a month, let's just say, instead of, you know, once a week. And so in the old days, that would not have, uh, that would not have worked out. There's no way for one pocket to pay for this other thing because it came out of a different pocket. But when we bring all of that under one home, you know, medical home perhaps, and there are all kinds of terms, then these, uh, these outreaches make more sense. So I, I do see some movements that are that are mitigating the increases the increases but as we talked about earlier i see some dark clouds on the horizon that threaten threaten the stability of the system that was evil foreshadowing <laughs> well, now you got to follow up with that. Those, uh, some of those dark clouds i guess well i think you're going to have some questions later on that uh, might be a better uh, spot to hijack this conversation to more teasers I guess back to Renee. Uh, in terms of other costs of health care that are, are not captured within uh, the insurance or the inflation rate and coverage, things like co-payments and drug costs, and, and what are you seeing in terms of the industry making progress in holding down those costs? Glad you asked. So let me start with the fact that HHS is, is asking for an end to surprise billing. So let me start with that. When you go in and have a knee replacement done, you pay for the surgical center, the anesthesiologist, the surgeon, and you've done your work looking for an in-network provider and facility. And who scoots in the room? A physician's assistant who's an independent contractor and he's out of network. So you receive all these different bills, especially if you're in an HSA account where you're going to pay initially. 
You can't figure out what you owe. And how does out-of-network person sneak in there, and why do I owe more? So it's a problem. Balance billing and out-of-network billing is a problem. And one of the talking points that has come up is why can't we have bundled pricing? And the answer is we can. So one of the things that I'm excited about is a company, uh, there's a number of them, but one of them is called PriceMDs. They have negotiated bundled pricing for hips, knees, shoulders, uh, expensive imaging through 1,600 surgical centers and 4,100 imaging centers. So you can tell your employee, you can have your knee replaced in Stockton and you can pay your normal coinsurance, or you can choose a high-quality facility surgical center in Merced, for example. I'm making that up. I don't know exactly where they are. And you can go there and have your knee replacement with no coinsurance. And I have a client right now who's actually giving a cash bonus to employees who use the facility and the Price MD network because it's a flat price, it's one bill for everything. Why can't we do more of that? That's what excites me. I think that there's also a company called APTA. They're paying cash at the door. So everybody was afraid of reference-based pricing. What about balance billing? They're paying while that appointment is being scheduled. And then the member pays their co-insurance back to, I'm sorry, I said APTA. It's called Apostrophe. APTA is a different program. Apostrophe is the TPA who's doing this. And they're doing it in certain pockets of the U.S., but they're paying cash up front. So you know what that tells me? That tells me that we can do better than the Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, Cigna, Aetna discounts that have been contracted. And the problem is a lot of us as employers, we don't have a big enough population to go knock on the door of a hospital and say we want to contract better. But I think there's a lot of room for opportunity to take advantage of these pre-negotiated bundled price contracts, steer employees that way and help get their costs down. And then on the pharmacy side, that's a whole other thing. I could be here all day talking about medications and how we manage the cost there. But um, those are some areas of opportunity, and they're working. I'm seeing groups deploy some of these, and we're watching their stop loss come down. We're watching their cost per employee come down. Um, so we are bending the trend for employers um, by engaging some of these resources. Will, what are your observations about uh, the other costs in healthcare, such as co-pays and drug costs and so forth? Yeah. Well, so beyond the fact that they're just too doggone complicated, right? I mean, I was at one of these breakfasts before, and I heard uh, the former chairwoman of the Clinton Council of Economic Advisors. She was also the head of the Haas Business School talk about the fact that when she got her benefit packet from her carrier, uh, she just threw up her hands and handed it over to her brother who was, you know, a doctor. So here obviously is a very bright person who can't figure this stuff, you know, out. So what our approach really is, um, is to, is to recognize that in the, in this industry, this stuff is, you know, way too complex. And, and this is not, uh, analogous to the travel, you know, industry where you kind of, uh, have reduced travel agents to the sidelines because you're able to kind of put online pieces together and, and then people are motivated to kind of put their vacation together. But even with all the online capabilities, this, you know, these co-pays and benefits stuff, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, people don't really, they're not motivated to wrap your mind around it. And then at the moment of real need, you, you just need to be able to get, you know, service. And that still leaves a lot of room for nefarious, I don't know if these are 
some of the dark clouds you're talking about. But, you know, you get air ambulance services that just want to kind of parachute in and take advantage of people. So we think two things that are really important. One, um, we've got to make it simpler so that we can actually hold our members' hands, guide them through the network if they want help that way. Right, We make it as clear as possible in terms of all the online capabilities, but we still think at the end of the day it's about making sure that the member knows that if they want help, we're there and we can kind of walk them through. I think uh, a lot of folks, when we talk about patient-centered care, that's where they're going with all of this to help you know, explain. The other part of this is, is actually sort of back to the future and recognize that at the end of the day, one's relationship with his or her doctor is vitally important. And so our doctors have to have all the information together about their, you know, patients so they can help the patient solve problems and, and guide them through. And that includes benefit information as well as the health information. And so platforms like Epic that Soto uh, Health Aetna are on is incredibly important by being able to make the physician uh, herself part of the solution to guide the member because it's, it's just, it gets too, too overwhelming and, and patients really are not really motivated to try to, you know, figure all this out. By Epic, you're referring to the health information system. The health information system, okay. yeah. yeah, exactly. Dan, what are your thoughts about uh, these other costs of health care? Um, <clears throat> when I hear the term surprise billing, I'm drawn to my specialty, emergency medicine. Somebody can go to their local hospital and they are in network and then a week later they get a bill for $5,000 not covered by the insurance company, and that is, that is what we call surprise billing. Uh, I didn't know that uh, a PA could step into the operating room and, and get a and, and bill, but uh, I know that in, in our specialty this happens. I, you know, it, it's literally shocking to think that you're doing the right thing. You're going to your in-network your Blue Cross hospital and you're, and you're doing the right thing and then you get this huge bill. So legislation is afoot. I think that employers probably want to encourage that because their employees are traveling through the state, they're, they're out of their home zone and they have what they believe is an emergency and they go in and they have this stunning uh, bill. There are a lot of other moves, uh, things that will, that will work to bring the cost of medicine down. The largest one that I see will be, and this may come as a shock, I don't know how many physicians there are in the room, I know uh, we have at least one other uh, physician, but I believe that the way the cost of medicine, the curve will be bent, is by expanding the pool of prescribers. So what this means is that, and, and the trend has already begun, that means that, uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm describing, I'm not approving or disapproving, okay? So let's just get that straight. I'm just describing. So psychologists, pharmacists, PAs, nurse, uh, 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 nurse practitioners, and I always forget my fifth one. So they're in that, in that category. These, these five... Um, specialties will be granted prescribing privilege and the trend has already begun throughout the country uh, and it's more advanced in some states and less advanced in others. And this is what's going to 
bring, dramatically bring down the cost of, of medicine in that direction because when you open up the pool of prescribers, uh, then you can uh, bring real uh, price controls or competition into the situation. It doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to work if you have one OB/GYN delivering in one town, uh, the cost is X, and you, ha you have two there, the cost becomes uh, 1.5X. It doesn't make economic sense. But if you have other people who could provide that service who are willing to do it for less, that's true competition. So I see that's a, a trend that, I, that has already started. We have not seen it. it. The battle is being waged here in California, and you will, you will definitely see more prescribers. I'd, I'd like to draw the line at naturopaths myself um, and homeopathy, but that's just my personal bias. Just to follow up, uh, PA, just to make sure I'm following correctly, physician assistant? Correct. Correct. Physician assistant, nurse, nurse anesthetist, uh, not nurse, um, nurse practitioners, psychologists, Pharmacists. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the legislation you referred to dealing with surprise billing, do you happen to know if it's at the state or the federal level or what particular bill that is? It'll be at the state, it'll be at the state level. I don't know of any national effort. I think it's the House and Energy Commerce Group, but it is being looked at. The thing is the Senate said that they won't vote on any health care laws until the fall. And, you know, then it would have to go through reconciliation. There were going to be an election year. So I don't see any of these laws changing now. But it, that one, ending surprise billing, is being reviewed now. You'll see a number of iterations of it um, popping up, but nothing will be voted on at any time uh, to make a difference right away. Stay with Renee for the next question. Um, with all of these efforts to control costs, what is happening with the quality of care in your, care, in your view and in your, your clients? observation. Um, what, what are the trends there? Is it improving or degrading? One of the things that we can do everything we can on the healthcare side, all of the tools that you're talking about, reaching them on their mobile phones, it's time to get your A1C checked. We can do all of the things we want, but how do we change behavior? It's really up to that patient, isn't it? So while we're working so hard on our end to become more efficient and organized, on our end meaning the healthcare side, I'm not on that end, how do we change that behavior? How do we get to quality of care? And so um, when you're fully insured as an employer, you're really turning the keys over to Anthem or Blue Shield or Kaiser, whoever you're insured with, to manage all of that for you. A lot of my groups are choosing to become self-funded so that we've got more transparency and we can steer some of that. And one of the things that's really helping, now I'm going to mention APTA. APTA, right now, behind the scenes with Aetna or Anthem or whoever you're insured with, there's what's called care management. So if there's a diagnosis or a complex diagnosis or a chronic condition, care management or disease management will try to reach out to that member and engage. And I'm finding that very few members take the call. They don't respond. If they're diagnosed with cancer, they're off and running and steering themselves. So we need earlier intercept. This is exactly what you were talking about. We've got to reach them sooner. And APTA, like Quantum, except APTA is doing this for smaller employers now, they're right at the front. They're the first place that an employee calls. So if an employee says, what plan should I choose? I think I'm going to get pregnant or... Um, whatever questions they have, they're collecting those data points, and they're in front of that, that member sometimes 56 days before a claim even happens. And what's encouraging to me is that the networks have typically said, no, 
you can't bring in care management, we're going to handle it. But United Healthcare and Aetna are partnering with Quantum and APTA. So one of the things that's leading to better quality of care is getting involved sooner, steering that employee, engaging them, and then the employer now has the opportunity to incent that. So if we go to their mobile app, go to their phone, that's what they're staring at all the time, and say it's time to get your A1C checked, make an appointment now, you can have $100 towards your wellness program, et cetera. We're hoping that we can change behavior that way. I'm going to add one more quick note. I was in the boardroom with a client in Arizona recently, and the owner said, Renee, if I have a diabetic who's not getting their blood glucose checked and we've made insulin available at no coinsurance and we've removed all the barriers and they're not willing to engage in doing anything about it, can we charge them more? And that's an interesting conversation. So employers are looking not just at premiums and benefits, they're looking at their population risk, they're looking at the 20% that's driving 80% of the cost, and they're talking about sticks and carrots, and it's just driving new conversations uh, with employers now that we've got this data, now that we can see the risk and we can see who's engaging and who isn't. So I'm excited about the fact that we've got that information. It'll be interesting to see how many employers choose to motivate with incentives or maybe even charge more for members who aren't engaging. That might be a way to start changing that behavior and steering them where we want them to go. It's, what is the answer? Can the employer charge them more? In yeah. Yes, they can. There's... Um, there are, well, there are wellness rules around how much you can incent. If you're going to have what's called an outcomes-based initiative in your wellness program where you want somebody to lower their blood pressure, lower blood, blood glucose, you can do that, but you have to follow certain policies on creating alternative standards and other ways to meet that goal. So as long as you're compliant, yes, you can do it. Well, what's your uh, observation about the quality of care and the direction it's going? Yeah, I mean, I think the the quality, right, coming from, so I'm a data guy, so from a data perspective, is really about if you, you can't measure it, you can't improve it. And what's happening at the national employer level is that they will often, these large Fortune 500 companies will often have, you know, epidemiologists, you know, on staff. But giving a plug to Epic here, so Epic, the insurance consultancy firm, that I've worked with some of their partners, and they're actually driving that level of data measurement and quality measurement into uh, mid-size and smaller tier employers. And so they're not, right, those smaller tier employers often just get overwhelmed with all the quality data. But firms like Epic can come in and explain to them the so what's of the data, and here are the actionable uh initiatives that you can take to drive quality, to put into programs like you were saying that help drive behavioral, you know, compliance. I think that's really sort of the, the next, you know, frontier uh, is to get that information that's out there, right? We're just drowning in it. But I should say turn the data into information that becomes actionable that then will drive behaviors both at the individual level and then at the plan sponsor level, which is still where we're getting most of our, you know, health care from, to, to put measures in place that they can, you know, improve quality. Because it's a, right, quality is not a fixed um, target. It's a moving target, and hopefully it's something that is moving forward and moving, you know, up. And it's really all about helping everyone to understand 
what that measure is in time in any given particular point, and then what are the things that we can actually do to help move that that forward. I mean, and that's where you need you know good partners um, that can help you understand those data and move them forward. Dan, what are your observations on this? I uh, totally agree with Will that uh, the data the data is key in in our current environment. The organization that I was formerly affiliated with made it a science uh, to consult the data and develop be best practices. And I think that the term best practice uh, deserves to be a headline uh, for the, the future cost of medicine. In uh, our system, the rate of heart attack uh, is 30% less than that of the surrounding population. and uh, the downstream consequences of that are huge, and that's because the organization centers around the, the science of what is best for the patient and almost forces it down their throat. The other side of this is that we, we felt that, uh, as an organization, the, the number of mammograms was falling below an acceptable level. And they literally made every doctor in the organization call 30 women out of the blue, 30, 30 Kaiser patients. Sorry, I let it slip out. Um, and uh, so each of us, you know, here we are in the emergency department. We're calling somebody in the privacy of their own home and say, it's time for you to get your mammogram. And the, the, the woman would say, now, who are you? Doctor who? You know, I'm saying, well, I'm the emergency doctor, you know. And so, but this is the power of, of best practices and an environment that uh, brings all the medical team members together to, uh, to improve the quality. Uh, there's one other area that comes to mind. So um, C. difficile is a very bad infection. Uh, it's clostridia. It's, it can cause quite a bit of illness and death. And it takes very careful uh, antibacterial care to prevent its spread and you, that became a priority and hand washing and monitors and a whole system was developed to improve the hygiene. It turns out doctors are terrible at washing their hands uh, when somebody's actually watching them. They say they're washing their hands. Okay, I say I am washing my hands, but yes, I was caught not and, uh, and so when you have a system that is dedicated to, to, to focusing on the things that make a real difference in the patient, then you see a higher quality. So I, I see the overall quality as increasing and that tools like best practices will, will help that. And, and, and it's key that you, be able to, you, you have to be able to disseminate the best practice. So in this system that we're referring to, you know, everybody is watching over everybody. In, outer, in other systems, there's not that collusion going on. There's not that, uh, or cohesion. Uh, and so uh, we, don't, we don't see that benefit, but we think that everybody is moving in that direction. So. I'm going to ask, I guess, about uh, how healthcare has been in the news lately uh, with the, uh, the presidential uh, campaign starting. Apologize in advance. I put some of you on the spot. No, none of you want to get ahead of your superiors on the political opinions here. But uh, with some of the Democratic uh, presidential candidates uh, discussing Medicare for all and the possible Medicare for all, even without private health insurance, I guess I'm wondering 
I guess I'll start with Renee again, as I'm wondering if your clients are asking you about what this would mean for their coverage for their own employers and what you're telling them. They're not asking. Okay. <laughs> um, but quick perspective, it's, it's a huge, Medicare for All is going to be a big ticket item. And the most con controversial part of that, the hottest issue that the Republicans will be pushing back on is the end of private insurance. So uh, you've got the Bernie Sanders camp, and I'm not taking an opinion, I'm just kind of talking out loud about some of the high talking points. These are early talking points. These are just to gain traction right now. There's, there's no details behind it. But you've got the Bernie Sanders camp saying, um, let's get rid of private insurance. They're greedy and they're, they're charging too much anyway. That, that's not untrue. That's probably not untrue. Um, you've got Camilla Harris saying, well, we can keep some private insurance for limited benefits and dental and vision. But here's my concern. There's a lot of questions, aren't there? Who's going to pay for it? How's it going to happen? But my concern isn't so much about transferring insurance to Medicare. Medicare is just insurance. It's not care management. My bigger concern was a talking point from Camilla Harris where she said, and by the way, when you need to get a surgery or get care, it has to go through prior authorization. What a pain. Let's get, away, get rid of all that. That I do not see. I can't see a free-for-all where we have Medicare for all. That's the insurance. And there's no pre-authorization of care. You can just get any surgery you want any time. So my concern personally is who's going to decide when you need surgery and whether it's medically necessary, if that leaves the insurance company, I'm not saying they're perfect at it, who's going to do that? And one more concern is hospitals have said if we're uh, relegated to being paid at the Medicare reimbursement rate, we'll go out of business. We can't do that for every patient. So who's going to subsidize hospitals? And are we all going to be relegated to facilities like the VA? So those are the details. It's hard to give opinions now. My clients aren't even bringing it up because we've really got to see these candidates push some of those details. And I suspect this could be like ACA. Do you remember Nancy Pelosi saying, we have to pass it so we can see what's in it? Remember that? So that's my concern with Medicare for All. We have to vote, and then we'll find out how it's going to work. Um, so it's early. Um, these are just, this is, this is rhetoric and talking points to build a base and drum up excitement. I have no idea where it's going to go yet. It's early. Will, is he a direct representative of a, the private health insurance industry here? What do you, what do you say to this? <laughs> well, let me be very clear. Is Will Huff private citizen? I do not speak for Larry Merlo on the Aetna side, nor Sarah Krevins on the uh, Sutter Health side. Uh, having said that, uh, again, agree with, you know, Renee, I mean, the, the, the key point is, so what does that mean? I mean, what does Medicare for all really mean? At this point, it's really all about the politics and the optics. And we know that Medicare for all is, we know that Medicare is a very uh, popular, you know, program, uh, you know, at, at all, you know, segment levels and whatever your political stripe is. Medicare is very popular. So it's being used, quite honestly, just as a marketing, you know, technique. It's the same thing that occurred when you wanted to repeal the estate tax. You call it a death tax. Oh, yeah, no, we've got to, it's the same exact, that's all that's really happening at this point. Now, having said that, what's also clear is that in the marketplace, the seeds of the Affordable Care Act are still germinating. 
there are now more plans who uh, plan to enter the market on the Affordable Care Act than canceled. So there is some germination for putting in place some structure that allows for plans to be to have market incentives to offer plans that are affordable. I mean, and that's about what we really need and, and whether that's called Medicare for all or whatever, I mean, those are the things that are actually working in the marketplace or it's proving that they're working because there are more plans who are now who plan to enter into the uh, public exchange market. So if, if, if that is the direction, then we can see success, but we've also seen, again, as Renee pointed out, I mean, heaven forbid that we're actually then talking about, you know, a government-run uh, type of, you know, system, and we find ourselves in a situation where, as we've had for the last several years, the government goes on strike and then shuts down. Are they going to shut down our Medicare for all? So I just say let the uh, let the market take place with some uh, you know government incentives, and and we've seen the proof in the pudding of how that can work out. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, there's a couple of uh, truisms that I'd like to put out in front before answering the questions. One, when you have unlimited coverage, uh, you're going to have unlimited need. So when, when you say every, we're covering everybody for everything, the amount of need will, will increase astronomically beyond what is projected. And the, almost the flip side of that is coverage does not equal care. So is this something that I see uh, some heads nodding in the audience? We can provide all the coverage, without those air quotes, um, we want, but that won't translate to care uh, because there are not enough caregivers, there are not enough doctors out there uh, to deliver the care as currently structured, which is why I believe that we will see this expansion of prescribing into, uh, into the other professions. It's one of the things that will address that. So just to give you some solid numbers, uh, you will see projections of shortages of physicians in the neighborhood of 60,000 to 80,000. Um, those true numbers are almost double that because uh, the current generation is not a 10 tenths generation. So um, my generation, you know, 10 tenths, 11 tenths, 12 tenths working schedules were, were almost the norm. And you're trying to replace that generation with a generation that's more, more focused on lifestyle and, and their, own, their own health needs. I don't say that's a wrong thing. I think that's a good thing. So um, you don't have enough caregivers to deliver that unlimited care. Uh, that's that's a, a quite unfortunate. Now, regarding the, the politics, I, I love politics. I, I'm really paying very close attention to what the candidates are saying. I focused on the top four of the Democrat candidates right now. On the one side, you have uh, Biden, who still is in the lead, and he still is you know, roughly about 28, 30 percent. And he is for tweaking ACA. He's not for any wholesale changes. Uh, he, he, he wants to uh, modify around the border. The other three major candidates, they are going, they're, they're marketing, as I believe Will said, they're, they're using this as a marketing tool to, to, to build up some primary interest. And then, like every, all candidates, after the primary, they're going to have to shift their position more to the middle to try to capture more of the middle ground to get elected. So we, we see a lot of, of wild 
uh, statements on the one side, and it's all going to come back uh, to a middle battleground, which Biden is already sitting on top of. So if you have to go, you know, if you have to put your money down, you have to consider that uh, uh, it's going to be Biden's position that's going to be uh, the center of the Democrat, uh, the final Democratic platform. So that's, that's my thought on that. Staying with you again, Ms. Dan, uh, the flip side of this, what would continuing, the continuing legal attacks on the Affordable Care Act, if they continue uh, successful, what would that mean for, uh, for responsible health coverage? I think that, the, I, th I think the current paradigm is untenable. I, I don't see how we can continue to promise, politically promise, unlimited care for an unlimited number of people because, you know, some of the candidates are, are talking about insuring non-citizens and so I'm just asking out loud, this is a thought balloon, if you say we offer unlimited care here to anybody who's inside our borders, what will happen to the transfer of people who, who, who desire that care? Do we not see Canadians coming across the border for hips? just like we do see Americans buying um, Canadian drugs to get a reduction. You know, so the, the money will talk in that regard. And I, I, see, I see that breaking down. I think we're going to end up with a two-tier system. Okay. So we're talking not the next five years, so you go about your business for the next five years and do the best you can. But somewhere in the next, uh, we'll say, uh, five might be even too short. Um, if Donald Trump is reelected in 2020. This pushes the, the, the process down the road a little bit farther. But we will have a two-tier system which the government will uh, mandate a basic level of care. It will not be provided directly by physicians. It will be provided by a team of which maybe a physician will be the head of, who knows, and then there'll be a supplemental market, which is where, you know, the uh, Aetna and the Blue Cross and so forth will be able to compete. The employers, I think, are going to want to be able to offer this as uh, an incentive in a tight marketplace. So I think that it's not going to be too disruptive in that case. But there are two trends that are really uh, heavily impacting uh, this. Specialty drugs. I'm not sure if anybody is familiar with the impact of specialty drugs. But these are drugs with an astounding price tag. Uh, the one that I was just focusing on is Silgensma. Literally $2.1 million for a single treatment. Have you had to authorize any? <laughs> yes, yeah. and, it, and it, the thing it's is stunning. it can Does save it the child. Yes, I okay. have a friend who lost a baby to, to this genetic disorder. And SMA. Silgensma is, um, is the answer, and it's, yeah, how can you not authorize it? So how can you not authorize it? So here's, here's how the numbers break down. So um, one in, in 11,000 babies will be born with this problem, okay? One in 11,000. If we, if we just genetically tested all the moms for this, at $400 a piece, the, the price tag comes out to about $4 million to prevent that one baby. Okay? If you treat it with the current, uh, currently approved drug, Spinraza, Spinraza is $750,000 in the first year and $100,000 to $300,000 each year for the rest of the person's life. If you don't treat, which some countries have made that choice and gone back and forth because it's a battle, it's $250,000 not to treat. 
Talk about your death panels, right? So, yeah, so the care, because the, the child will die early, so you're just taking care of them for, for their short lifespan. And some countries, advanced countries, Ireland being one, have said that uh, we're, we don't think we can afford that. And then there's a battle back and, and battle forward. But that's just one drug. Maybe I'm getting carried away here. I'll, I'll just finish up with this. In, in 1990, there was, one, there was one specialty drug. By the end of the decade, there were 30 specialty drugs. Now there are over 200 specialty drugs. These drugs are used to treat perhaps 1% of your workforce, 1% to 2% of your workforce. And they cost between 30 and 50% of your drug expenditures. So that trend is, is going to break the bank if you, if you march it out. And there, uh, there's another trend that's coming that I will not delve into, more foreshadowing, but that's, that's where I think politically we, we're going to have to say the government's going to step in, it's going to provide a basic level of care, it's not going to be attractive, there are going to be long lines, and then you, the employers, will offer supplemental care uh, and uh, you'll attract your employees that way. That's the time we have available. Questions from the audience? I have a I have a quick question about um, the role of big pharmacy in all of this. I didn't, I didn't hear much comp, uh, conversation about that. You just talked about specialty drugs, and so that made me think of it. There's a lot of talk about big pharmacies actually because of its lobby power and a lot of other things is controlling the cost of yeah. health care. Yeah. How do you all feel about that? Well, I'll make a quick comment on that. So, you know, you may have a drug like Humira, and I'm not picking on Humira. It comes to market and it's patented and when the patent expires, generics are allowed to come to market. So there's a lot of um, suppression of generics and trying to keep them out of market. There's a lot of games that are played and it's terrible. So um, I would say that both sides of the house agree that big pharma has to be tackled, but there's big money. Um, the second part of it is the pharmacy benefit manager. So when you're, as an employer, purchasing prescription medications for your employees, they're using what's called spread pricing. And there's probably over 10 different profit uh, revenue points on every drug, whether it's how it's filled, where it's filled, what formulary you're using. There's rebates. And President Trump wants to get rid of rebates because he's saying it's just a margin grab. What's the real cost of the drug? So there's games in big pharma, and then there's gaming in the pharmacy benefit manager world. So we work with transparent pass-through pharmacy benefit managers that are only going to call a uh, charge a fill rate and no other profit points. But big pharma, that's for the big guys to deal with. I have no idea how to tackle that. Yeah, so obviously uh, part of our parent company, CVS Caremark, is a pharmacy benefit you know, manager. And uh, CVS Caremark's approach is around transparency and data, again, Primarily, our customers are national Fortune 500, you know, customers for the most part, and so it is helping uh, our stakeholders get an understanding around how they handle some of the drug uh, situations that physician here is, uh, you know, describing, uh, because they've got to make those life and death benefit for decisions, you know, on behalf of their employees. Again, back to the point, it's so important, particularly in this. Uh, low unemployment environment that they attract and retain. So uh, understanding how to handle scenarios like that is what our position is in trying to advise employers around how to handle 
you know, the, the pharmacy and, uh, and big pharma to be that, that intermediary. And I'd like to add in, you know, uh, the um, president has uh, floated the proposal, which I support, of allowing Medicare to negotiate for drug pricing. It's, it's amazing that the single largest purchaser uh, in the United States of drugs is prohibited from, from, com from uh, seeking competition. Uh, even the Canadians are, are complaining about this. They're going, uh, they're passing legislation, perhaps as we speak, to, to increase the negotiating power of, of their government uh, programs. I think that uh, if, if that tr is allowed to go forward, that, that uh, it'll, it'll have a big impact. The other side of this, the, 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 the dark side of the question is, how are we going to continue to foster innovation? So another of my favorite drugs uh, treats hepatitis C. Not that I use these drugs, but that, but that you know, I just, I love this story. So they, they, they de hepatitis C costs, you know, several million dollars over the course of, of it, ends up in a liver transplant and so forth. And so uh, the old drug uh, cost $160,000, had a 50% cure rate, had horrible side effects, and uh, the new drug that replaced it cost $80,000, has no side effects, uh, and cures in eight weeks instead of a year. Okay, so that's a tremendous... And the company that was selling this drug was, was um, attacked attacked viciously for their pirating, you know, their, uh, their, their pi piratical, piratical uh, uh, approach. But, you know, this is a fantastic improvement uh, for hepatitis C in the world. How are we going to move forward in, in, this, in this new world and still foster innovation? Healthcare in Sacramento, how important is it in our region? Well, when you take out government Employees, government employment, it's the number one employer in healthcare and healthcare related industries. It's the number one employer in our region. We have an uh, internationally acclaimed teaching hospital. We have a fantastic medical system centered right here in, in Sacramento with Sutter Health. We have Dignity, who has a very strong footprint in the area. We have Marshall up the hill in Placerville area. And we have Kaiser with three major medical facilities here and building another one, replacing one in the rail yards as the construction is underway right now. That's just the hospital size. Then you got the caregivers. And you have the employees of the caregivers. You have labs. You have multiple lab systems here, all feeding into the system. So how important is it that we get it right in this region? Do the math. Okay? Do the math. It's crucial, and it's why we have a reporter who's focused on health care in our region. It's why we have panels like this, and we have the conversation. It's always a tough conversation. And I think the hardest part about having these tough conversations is there's no definitive answers. Every question that gets answered brings forth another question that needs to be answered. And medicine is not a static business. In construction, you know the code, you know what you got to do, you got to build the building, it's got to be safe, you're done, the building's up, you're done, boom. In the medical business, it's different. And when it all comes down to it, who's the customer? Figure that out, right? Because different sectors have different customers. But the ultimate customer is the end care user. 
And sometimes I think that gets a little lost as you go through the lineage of care providing and, and services accountability, all the way through research pharmacy, all the way to the end user. And then you've got to be careful, as uh, you know, Dr. Field said, some people have reactions that may not be based in fact, and you've got to look beyond, you've got to look beyond the rhetoric to the facts of the information. So that's why we have experts and leaders in the fields to give us the behind the scenes and don't let the panic rhetoric get in the way of real true knowledge. That's our mission, the Business Journal. Inform, educate, connect. We hope we've done that today. Uh, thank you, Adam. Great, great panel, great questions. Thank you to all of you, Renee, Will, and Dan, Dr. Dan, I should say, for, for sharing your expertise, your thoughts, and uh, with all of us here. We have, uh, we have recorded today's discussion um, about the trends and innovations that we're seeing, and the news team will be putting together an edited transcript of today's conversation that will appear in the 9-13, a week from now's uh, weekly edition of the Business Journal, so be sure to look for that. If someone was not here today and you think they need to know about this, let them know to look for that in the Business Journal, because we've got 130-some-odd people here, but we have... 58,000 readers to the weekly edition of the Business Journal and 290,000 monthly readers uh, online, they need a chance to get this information as well. So thanks again to our partner sponsor, UC Davis Health, and supporting sponsor, Sutter Health Aetna, without whom we cannot put these, these programs on. And thank you very much to uh, Courtney Gesford, who I don't know where she is, but without her, in the very back of the room, our events director, who puts in tireless hours organizing, planning, and executing these types of events. So thank you very, very much. Thank you for attending today. Travel safely and make it a great day.